The Creeper, Starman, Doctor Strange, Hawk and Dove, Baron Brimstone, Shade the Changing Man, The Blue Beetle, The Question, Squirrel Girl, Spider-Man. These are just some of the characters that sprung from the bountiful mind of artist and writer Steve Ditko, whose legendary career in comics across Marvel and DC spanned five prolific decades. An eccentric and a recluse later in life, the indelible impression that he left on the iconic characters and stories we read in the pages of comics every Wednesday is too strong to ignore. Mr. Ditko passed away at the age of 90 on June 29, 2018. This issue of Comics on Consoles is dedicated to him, the army of legendary characters he created, and the limitless imagination he was kind enough to offer us, the ravenous consumers of his stories. He was an architect of what we now know to be the comics medium, and there will never be another one quite like him. Thank you, sir. Why, Venom? Why did you come back? You should know, Spider-Man. The heist you pulled at the Science Expo. You're the bad guy this time. You idiot! Think, Eddie. Think back to that day. I was with you in the crowd. An imposter Spider-Man was on stage. He burned both of us. And now we've been played against each other. <sighs> You're right, partner. Mary Jane! We've got you! You and your wife are innocent, Parker. Our bad. Our bad? Our bad? I'm gonna kill Peter you! Peter Parker! Just get me out of here now! Bummer. You're in the doghouse now, dude. Coming, honey. Welcome to issue number 11 of Comics on Consoles, a podcast that dedicates itself to exploring the heroes from the modern mythology of comic books and their appearances in the interactive adventures of video games. I'm your host, Chris Clow, and for this issue, we're going to dive into a game that is arguably the most important innovator in comics-based gaming since the likes of Superman on the Atari 2600, the original entry of this show's subject genre. Now, why do I say something as clearly loaded as that? Well, think about the modern landscape of video games that feature superheroes. In truth, look beyond that, and at the action game itself. At the pivotal point at which mainstream video games on home consoles were making the transition from the second to the third dimension, the way people had to engage with video games had to be rather drastically redefined. All of the major gameplay innovations of the 1990s would serve to culminate in the most standard way gamers would come to interact with 3D environments 
in the following hardware generation. From crawling through the depths of hell in the original Doom, up through flying your R-Wing through the skies of the besieged planet Corneria in Star Fox, game developers were starting to grasp how players would be able to easily and intuitively manage 3D space with simplicity, even though 3D games themselves were far more complex than their 2D forerunners. In 1996, though, there was a renaissance. A game that was so brilliant and elegant in its design, it forced the entire world of video games into the third dimension much faster than would have happened if this game had never come along, hurried further by the addition of a simple stick onto its console's primary input device. It's me, Mario! Releasing alongside Nintendo's first fully dedicated 3D-capable console, 1996's Super Mario 64 provided a revolution for 3D video games. Sure, it wasn't the first 3D game, but it guided the easy-to-learn, tough-to-master playstyle of its 2D predecessors on previous Nintendo consoles and demonstrated to the wider community of video game creators that the world was ready to largely leave behind the traditional 2D video game for something grander. By adding an analog control stick to the input layout of their new console's controller, Nintendo basically fashioned the N64's primary peripheral as the first major console input device designed for interfacing with 3D worlds. Sony would actually end up following Nintendo's lead on this front, since the first version of the now perennial DualShock controller would be introduced to the lineup of original PlayStation peripherals just over a year after the Nintendo 64 went to market, wisely emulating, and even advancing, two major features of the N64 controller. It integrated a rumble feature, which the N64 controller achieved with a separate peripheral, albeit before the DualShock, and added two analog control sticks to its now classic layout. Super Mario 64 represented a fundamental shift in the focus of the gaming industry. It showed how the expected quality that Nintendo had spent the prior 15 years cultivating in the 2D space could translate to the third dimension and would inspire a generation of game designers on how best to take advantage of running a game in 3D with snappy, tight controls and highly kinetic action. While gaming would have most definitely reached that level had Super Mario 64 not come along, it likely would have happened much later than it did. Beyond that, though, Nintendo would release another game on that same system just a couple of years later that further illustrated how to do a 3D game correctly. After the release of 1998's The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, Nintendo proved once again how 3D gaming environments can lead to expansive worlds filled to the brim with activities and tasks for a player to accomplish. The addition of the Z-targeting innovation from Ocarina also greatly emphasized how combat in a 3D space could be streamlined and simplified, and although performance in Ocarina is variable when played on original hardware, its command of scale and input simplicity would definitively prove that Nintendo were the true innovators of what 3D gaming could be at its highest apex. 
So how does all of this lead back to superheroes? Well, the first superhero game released as a title that was rendered fully in 3D, as far as I can tell, was the original Fantastic Four, developed by Probe Entertainment and released on the Sony PlayStation in September of 1997. Some other titles came close, for instance the arcade game Avengers and Galactic Storm was released first in 1995 and had some 3D elements, though it appears to have gone the same route as 1994's Donkey Kong Country by pre-rendering 3D models and applying them as 2D sprites for most of its gameplay. That was also kind of the case with 1996's The Incredible Hulk The Pantheon Saga, which used 3D environments but used a pre-rendered model onto a 2D sprite for your player character, as well as Iron Man and Exo Manowar in Heavy Metal that same year, which pre-rendered everything for a game that looked 3D but didn't actually render that way in real time. While 97's FF was the first in the genre to take advantage of the ability to render games in 3D, it didn't really push the envelope very far from what superhero gamers had been accustomed to throughout the 1990s. It was a side-scrolling beat-em-up, with the ability to walk up and down on a stage while also moving forward. It also represented a superheroic stumble into the third dimension, since its mediocre mechanics and generally low level of performance failed to make a very good impression on the gamers of the time. That stumble would only grow more pronounced in the other early steps for superhero 3D gaming over the course of the next few years. Just a few months after Fantastic Four's release came a rather momentous game for superhero fans, at least in the sense of what it represented as a stride. Spawn the Eternal, released in December of 97, was the first video game based on a comic book character in the 3D action game genre. Played in fully rendered 3D environments with a 3D player model, the game attempted to ape the maze style of gameplay found in one of the PlayStation's biggest innovators, Tomb Raider, which ended up stretching development time for the title to a protracted two-year cycle after the first adventure of Lara Croft became something Spawn's developers would aspire to. When it was released... It earned virtually no praise for bringing the superhero to the 3D action genre, because frankly, it didn't deserve it. High-profile reviewers of the time at outlets like GameSpot and IGN rated it between 1 and 2 on a 10-point scale, ensuring its place among some of the most mediocre superhero games ever produced. Tonight's forecast, a freeze is coming. The following year, another 3D superhero game came along that, like Spawn, would also be a 3D action game, but it would also be far more ambitious than the vast majority of superhero games that had, or even would, come along over the next few years. In 1998, Probe Entertainment and Acclaim released Batman and Robin for the original PlayStation strangely doing so over a year after the film it was firmly tied to had bowed and flopped in theaters in the summer of 97. This basically amounted to a last chance for that specific film's IP to produce anything positive for the wider superhero genre or its subject characters. Batman and Robin kind of needs to be seen to be believed, 
because what it aimed to accomplish was unprecedented for its time. When you begin, you can choose one of the three playable characters, Batman, Robin, or Batgirl. When you choose your character, you're then able to explore a limited version of the film's rendition of the Batcave and check on the Batcomputer in order to see where in Gotham you're needed. From there, you actually climb into a vehicle based on your character choice, the Batmobile for Batman, the Redbird motorcycle for Robin, and the Batblade cycle for Batgirl, and venture out into the night to try and put a stop to the nefarious plots produced by the alliance of Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy. Arriving over three years before Rockstar Games' Grand Theft Auto 3 would completely reshape the possibilities of an open-world 3D action game that allowed you to drive vehicles around a simulated city, Batman and Robin was the first major attempt in the interactive medium to be something of a superhero simulator. On concept, this sounds terrific, but that's about the only thing that the game actually succeeds at. When you sit down and try to play the thing, Batman and Robin is something of an exacerbation of every major problem that early 3D games, particularly on the PS1, would have. Textures are blurry, polygonal models are far too sharp with aliasing being distractingly visible, contrast is very low, frame rate is choppy, and actually navigating 3D space in the game itself is far more arduous than it should be. Like Spawn the Eternal, Batman and Robin uses an input method colloquially referred to as tank controls, just like a lot of early 3D PS1 games. Turning and moving cannot be accomplished at the same time. If you want to turn, you have to stop and then move your character, usually with all the speed of a tortoise on Xanax, and then continue moving forward only after you've aligned your character with the direction you want to go. Consequently, combat is an utter mess to attempt to accomplish, and newbies to the game will undoubtedly find themselves felled by a mere freeze henchman within their first half hour. If that. All of these aspects combine into a game that's very difficult to play, and even harder to enjoy. It got hammered on the critical front, but still, it's hard not to at least partially admire what it was going for, but alas... A game featuring the Dark Knight wouldn't begin to make good on what Batman and Robin attempted to do for another 13 years, or 17 years if you want to throw the Batmobile into the mix, not counting Lego Batman 2, of course. So, surely, another year following the release of Batman and Robin on the PS1 would allow game developers to take a decent crack at finally making a worthy 3D superhero game, right? I mean, <laughs> it's not as if a developer would proceed in such a bullheaded way that they'd end up creating something worse, monumentally worse even, than what we've seen so far of 3D superhero games. Right? Guys? No. Oh god, no. Chances are, any fan of superheroes and video games likely knows what's coming next. In 1999, the 3D superhero game would come to Nintendo's platform, the N64, the same console which gave us the eternally terrific 3D gaming innovators like Super Mario 64 and The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, we're now going to be getting the original superhero, 
the Man of Steel himself, to fly across TV screens in a 3D action game. Well, I likely don't need to remind you about how exactly that would end up going down. The utter and complete failure of the game referred to as Superman 64 is still tainting the possibilities for the Man of Steel in the interactive realm, and as we touched on back in issue number 8 of this show, we're now going on 12 years since the last time we had a solo, dedicated Superman video game. Sure, that's not entirely the fault of Titus's monstrosity, but having a game as monumentally bad as that one still manages to come to mind for people who dispute Superman's potential to make a good video game even a whopping 19 years after it first came along. <sighs> My poor grandmother. She actually bought that game for me for Christmas that year. Yeah, I mean, I may have received it, but I was too young to know any better, and now... I'm riddled with guilt about the fact that she likely bought the thing at full price. Please, sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, wherever you are, forgive me, Grandma Clow. By the end of 1999, things were just not looking good for 3D superhero games. Sometimes, though, the virtue of patience gets its just reward. Sure, the brand new era of three-dimensional video gaming hadn't yet managed to produce much of anything resembling a good superhero experience, but the right people were out there, quietly learning from the mistakes of others and crafting something that would end up being utterly transformative in the realm of not just superhero games, but, I would argue, the third-person action-adventure game itself. As the summer of 2000 brought the 21st century superhero innovator X-Men to the silver screen, it was accompanied by the decent X-Men Mutant Academy on the PS1. A nice step in the right direction to be sure, but hardly a representative superhero adventure. Fortunately, for gamers and comics fans everywhere only a month later, along came a spider. Before we work our way back up to the year 2000, let's go back to where everyone's favorite wall crawler came from. After initial stints as both timely publications in the 1930s and 40s and Atlas Comics in the 1950s, the company began adopting the name Marvel Comics, the name of a former shell company for Timely in the 40s, in early 1961. The first titles to carry the Marvel branding included issues in both Journey into Mystery and the then-teen-oriented comedy title, Patsy Walker. A few major hits at a rival publishing company would inspire writer and editor Stanley Martin Lieber, well known by his pseudonym Stan Lee, to take a look at superheroes as a new path forward for the freshly rebranded company. Starting in the 1950s, National Periodical Publications, largely known by its informal name of DC Comics prior to its official renaming in 1977, saw sales of its classic superhero characters that had enjoyed success in the 1940s beginning to go stagnant by the early years of the next decade. The only characters spared this fate were DC's biggest guns, 
Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. A change needed to be made, and from that necessity, a trend would emerge for the next 15 years that would reverberate far beyond just the characters of DC Comics. In-house DC editor Julius Schwartz, known for his documented appreciation for science fiction, came up with an idea. The core concepts for certain legacy superhero characters would remain relatively intact, but they would be revitalized and introduced with new designs, storytelling aims, and specific character traits. What we now attribute as the beginning of the Silver Age of comics began in 1956's Showcase No. 4, the first appearance of the new incarnation of the superhero known as The Flash, Barry Allen. Featuring a new science-based origin story in a slickly redesigned costume by artist Carmine Infantino when compared with his Golden Age counterpart, The Flash signaled the beginning of a new era of storytelling that revitalized DC's entire line. A similar transformation happened to the Green Lantern a few years later. Gone was Alan Scott of the Golden Age with his magic ring and red costume, and in his place was Hal Jordan, a member of an intergalactic law enforcement unit known as the Green Lantern Corps, with the source of his power instead being advanced otherworldly science instead of magic. By March of 1960, writer Gardner Fox had taken the lead in performing a somewhat similar revitalization of the original superhero team, the Justice Society of America, and created something new with revitalized characters like Green Lantern and The Flash, combining them with classic characters like Batman and Superman to form the Justice League of America in the pages of The Brave and the Bold, number 28. That seemed to be the real kicker for Lee and the editors at Marvel. In a documentary called Superheroes United, The Complete Justice League History, Lee reflected on those times by saying, Things run in cycles. There were many times when we'd be publishing superhero stories in the past, and suddenly they didn't sell that well. And Martin, my publisher, would notice that, hey, some other company is doing Western books, and they seem to be selling better. Well, we don't need a house to fall on us. The next day, I was turning out Western stories. You know, the way the uh, Fantastic Four started, my publisher, Martin Goodman, had been playing golf with one of the top executives at DC Comics. He told Martin that he had this book called The Justice League, a group of heroes, and it was selling very well. Well, there are no flies on Martin, so he came back to the office and he said to me, Stan, National has a book of a team of superheroes that's selling well. Why don't we do a book like that? That's right. From the mouth of Stan Lee to God's ears, the rise of the Fantastic Four is attributed, at least in part, to the popularity of DC's own Justice League of America. Of course, there are far more specifics to the rise of the FF and Marvel's own rise in popularity. By enlisting the skills of Jack Kirby already a well-established comics creator by this point in time, the FF took off, becoming one of the single most popular comic magazines ever produced by that point in time. That success led publisher Martin Goodman and Stan Lee to realize that much of Marvel's future would lay at the booted feet of masked adventurers. Because of that emerging fact, according to an interview conducted by Tom DeFalco in 2001's Spider-Man The Ultimate Guide, 
Lee was thinking about ways in which Marvel could create more superhero stories, with an added objective to potentially make his next creation far more original. Around that same point in time, he was made aware of a noted increase in demand of superhero comics from teens, along with a desire for characters those readers would be able to identify with on a more personal level. Over the years, Lee also related that these factors combined into a fateful moment. One day, as he was attempting to think of a hook for a new superhero character, he says he saw a fly crawling on a nearby wall, which would eventually lead him into the idea that seeing a human character do that could make for a pretty interesting superpower. While this story is really fun, Lee himself is called into question whether or not it actually happened, saying in his autobiography, quote, I can't remember if that was literally true or not, but I thought it would lend a big color to my pitch to Martin Goodman. Lee was also a noted fan of early pulp magazines, including of a non-powered vigilante character called The Spider that primarily appeared in popular publications titles throughout the 30s and 40s. In any event, all of those factors, the desired age of a new hero, his own love of the pulp spider character, and the either real or fabricated instance with a fly on the wall, led Lee to conceive of the character he called Spider-Man. That name actually went against conventional wisdom of the time, since most characters who were teenagers usually had boy, kid, or lad as part of their superhero names, instead of man. This, among many other factors Lee would detail by around 1986, led Martin Goodman to be very wary of actually giving Spider-Man a chance. Nevertheless, there are few pitchmen on Earth quite like Stan Lee and Goodman agreed to allot one tryout issue of a sci-fi supernatural anthology title known as Amazing Adult Fantasy, shortened in this one instance simply to Amazing Fantasy, which was about to be cancelled anyways. In an interview conducted by Roy Thomas for Alter Ego magazine in 2011, Lee stated his belief that the impending cancellation of Amazing Fantasy was the only reason that Goodman agreed to take a chance on Spider-Man. After getting the go-ahead, Lee turned to his go-to collaborator in Jack Kirby. Kirby, reminded of a character with a similar kind of origin story he had worked on with his Captain America co-creator Joe Simon about a decade earlier, conferenced with Lee about the story and began drawing pages. After showing them to Lee, the writer reportedly disliked what he saw enough that he'd instead turned to the book's inker, a 29-year-old artist by the name of Steve Ditko, to come up with a new overall look. In a 2000 interview with Alter Ego conducted again by Roy Thomas, Ditko recalled his process of creating the look for the new, young, arachnid-themed hero. He said, quote, One of the first things I did was to work up a costume, a vital, visual part of the character. I had to know how he looked before I did any breakdowns. For example, a clinging power so he wouldn't have hard shoes or boots a hidden wrist shooter versus a web gun and holster, etc. I wasn't sure Stan would like the idea of covering the character's face, but I did it because it hid an obviously boyish face. It would also add mystery to the character. In that same interview, Ditko also contended that the name Spider-Man arose out of the name convention of DC's Hawkman, whose name Lee always liked. Compared to Kirby's work, which Lee characterized as too heroic, Ditko went with something a bit darker, less outwardly physically impressive, 
and something extremely dynamic and even pretty complex compared with other superheroes at both Marvel and DC. Complexity, of course, is now a noted hallmark of Ditko's work when looking back on his full body of contributions to the superhero genre, but he managed to capture something that seemed very much in the zeitgeist of one of comics' more experimental stages. Personally, it's right up there alongside Carmine Infantino's redesign of The Flash as one of my absolutely all-time favorite superhero costumes, bar none. When it came to tailoring his exact vision for what the first Spider-Man story was going to be, Lee didn't take any chances. Although Ditko did all of the pencils for the issue's interior, he overruled Ditko as the cover artist, instead enlisting Kirby to create the cover based on a concept that Ditko had come up with. During Lee's court deposition in the 2010 case between Marvel and the family of Jack Kirby, Lee explained that he had a lot of confidence in the covers that Kirby would produce, even if Kirby himself may not have been quite as right for the issue's interiors as Ditko. While a strange web of stories has surrounded the specific contributions of Lee, Ditko, and Jack Kirby to the ultimate creation of Spider-Man, what I've described here makes up the generally canonized and officially recognized story. In Amazing Fantasy number 15, Spider-Man made his first appearance, created by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, with additional contributions by Jack Kirby. Still, I'd encourage anyone to seek out the plethora of full books that have been written about Spidey's genesis, since it's a fascinating look at early Marvel Comics history. Amazing Fantasy No. 15 was published in August of 1962, with a cover date of October, and the various creators at Marvel then went about their business. A few months later, according to author Les Daniels' 1991 work Marvel Five Fabulous Decades of the World's Greatest Comics, Martin Goodman was shocked to see that not only did Spider-Man's first appearance sell well, but it was actually one of the best-selling titles in Marvel Comics' young history. It was pretty fair to say that the tryout for The Amazing Spider-Man had passed with flying colors. What no one would realize, though, is that Spider-Man as a character would facilitate a forward leap for comic book storytelling and for the concept of the superhero itself. The initial success of Amazing Fantasy number 15 led Martin Goodman to give Stan Lee a dedicated title for his new superhero. The Amazing Spider-Man number 1 premiered with a cover date of March 1963, and over the course of the next two decades, with a particularly seminal run on the first full 100 issues of Amazing, Lee would go on to make Spider-Man not just one of the best new additions to Marvel's character roster, but as a superhero that truly pushed the bounds of the kinds of stories that could be told with these kinds of characters. John Romita Sr. would replace Steve Ditko as the primary artist of the ongoing series in 1966, and Spider-Man was also a character that proved popular enough to warrant spin-off magazines, a particularly rare occurrence in comics outside of characters like Superman and Batman in those days. Honestly, though, it's still kind of rare for a hero to have more than one dedicated book. By the late 1960s, Spidey broke out of comics and into his own dedicated animated TV series in 1967, 
the source of the now timeless theme song for the character that's even been covered by the likes of the Ramones and Michael Buble. In comics in the early 1970s, Spider-Man also led to a revision of the Comics Code, a group of rules that govern the content of comics after the Frederick Wortham Seduction of the Innocent scare of the 1950s. The code normally forbade any portrayal of illicit drug use under any circumstances, but according to author Bradford Wright's 2001 book Comic Book Nation, representatives of the White House during the Richard M. Nixon administration approached Marvel and Stan Lee to create a Spider-Man story that told a cautionary tale about drug use. The story, Green Goblin Reborn, ultimately appeared in The Amazing Spider-Man number 96 through 98. In it, Harry Osborn, Peter Parker's friend and son of villain the Green Goblin, had developed an addiction to unspecified pills. When Peter discovers Harry's addiction, he's able to use that knowledge to defeat Goblin, whom Spidey already knew to be Norman Osborn. When Harry experienced an overdose, Spidey led Norman to see his son lying in a hospital bed, causing the villain to faint. The story was the first time that comic book storytelling had dealt with the issue of drug abuse, and though the Comics Code initially refused to give the stories their stamp of approval, Marvel sold the issues anyway, circumventing the Comics Code authority and going to press without their approval, a daring move for the time. They ended up selling very well, and because the Code ended up losing its teeth in this instance, the code itself ended up being revised to allow for stories to deal with racier subject matter like drug use. Just a few weeks after that revision, a highly well-regarded story about drug abuse in Green Arrow's teenage sidekick Speedy was told in DC's Green Lantern Green Arrow number 86 by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. While that story may be a bit more well-regarded in the grand scheme of things, it likely couldn't have happened at all if Spidey didn't blaze the trail first. I'm about to say something that I never ever conceived of ever saying on this show, or really any other instance, but hey, thanks President Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Of course, though, all of these achievements in storytelling pale in comparison to the one that truly represented no less than a fundamental shift in the kinds of subject matter that comics and superheroes could deal with in their stories. If you have any familiarity whatsoever with what I'm talking about, you know exactly what the story is and who it deals with. Gwen. The night Gwen Stacy died, running in 1973's The Amazing Spider-Man number 121 and 122, written by Jerry Conway with art by Gil Kane, would prove to be a pivotal turning point in the history of superhero storytelling. After the Green Goblin abducted Gwen Stacy and took her to the George Washington Bridge, at least as given in the text, the art made it look like the Brooklyn Bridge, Spider-Man rushes to come to her aid and combats Goblin high above the ground. In the ensuing battle, Goblin throws Gwen off the bridge, and Spider-Man shoots a web line at her legs and pulls her back up to him. Though he initially thinks he saved her, he quickly realizes that isn't the case. Gwen is lifeless when Spider-Man pulls her back up to the bridge, and unsure whether Goblin broke her neck before throwing her off, 
or whether his web may have caused a sudden stop whiplash that may have been the actual cause, Peter is forced to come to terms not just with losing the woman he loves, but with a death he may have caused, and as a result, he fully blames himself. The story sent shockwaves through the community of devoted Marvel readers of the time, because this never should have happened. For a story to feature the death of an innocent that a hero failed to save, to say absolutely nothing of the fact that Gwen was the love interest of one of Marvel's most popular heroes, was completely unheard of. It was a morbidly momentous moment, and comics historians often attribute this story as signaling the end of the brighter, glitzier Silver Age of comic books and the beginning of a whole new age of stories that were darker, harder-edged, and grittier. The Bronze Age of comics was born, and a Spider-Man story had changed the stakes of the entire comics medium forever. To call it anything short of a seismic shift for both the genre and the narrative delivery mechanism that is the comic book does the story's importance a disservice. In 1977, Spider-Man also broke into live action with the creation of a short-lived TV series starring actor Nicholas Hammond as the title character. The following year, he was also adapted into a Japanese TV series that was far from a faithful adaptation of the character or his world. Over the next 20 years, Spider-Man cemented himself as Marvel's most iconic character. With creators like Eric Larson, J.M. DeMatteis, John Romita Jr., Mike Zeck, and Todd McFarlane contributing to the character's legacy from the 80s into the 90s, Spider-Man would continue to be the poster child for Marvel throughout the next several decades, a position he still has. It's kind of astonishing, because even if Spider-Man may occupy a third or fourth tier spot within the shared universe he inhabits, Spidey is most visibly Marvel's primary mascot, more than any Avenger, and more than any X-Men. Other additions the comics would make to the character's meritorious legacy include the saga of the Black Suit, the wedding between Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson, timeless stories like Kraven's Last Hunt and Invasion of the Spider-Slayers, the introduction to Venom, the arrival of Carnage, and even parts of the infamous Clone Saga. All of these moments continued to prove that Spider-Man was one character who had plenty of memorable, and perhaps even foundational moments, throughout the 1980s and 90s. My personal journey towards appreciation for Spidey came not from comics when I was a kid in the early 90s, but instead, like most things when you're a single-digit kid before the internet took over the world, from television. When it premiered on Fox Kids in November of 1994 and ran alongside the likes of Batman the Animated Series and Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the cartoon series simply known as Spider-Man was a hell of a revelation for a kid who lived primarily in the Batman-dominated early 90s. Bringing aboard both storytellers and talent from comics and prior superhero cartoons, including Batman, by the way, Spider-Man was a crash course in learning everything a kid could possibly want to learn about Marvel's webhead and proved to be my first gateway into Marvel at large. 
While it steered clear of the more traumatic comic stories that would come about, its adaptations of characters and stories, particularly the origin of Venom, the heavy use of the Kingpin, and its occasional crossovers with other Marvel characters, the Spider-Man series was the perfect other media effort that most clearly illustrated to me, at a young age, that there was a world beyond Superman, Batman, and the Justice League. Even in the days before Spidey hit the silver screen, he was an undeniably awesome hero. Because of his relatability, his terrific array of villains that rivals Batman's as the best rogues gallery in comics, and the very different kinds of conflicts that you can only really portray with your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. From that moment on, Spider-Man became one of my all-time favorite superheroes, and facilitated an even greater love of the comic book medium that would come to define much of my personality as time went on. One of the major things I love about Spidey in general is that Peter is a great role model, even if he doesn't know or believe that about himself. So, we've established the very interesting road that Spider-Man went on from his creation on up through his explosion as an immensely popular hero throughout his entire history from the 60s through the late 90s. Serving basically as Marvel's mascot, Spider-Man was also the first Marvel character to be translated into the interactive medium of video games, almost from the very beginning of that medium's development. On the heels of Superman's arrival into the video game medium in 1979, the Amazing Spider-Man followed him just a few years later onto the Atari 2600. If I don't get you wet head, my guy, you now this will! Holy hell! And you're running out of fluid! Is this more action than even Spider-Man can handle? Spider-Man, a video game from Parker Brothers, the ones to beat. To date, Spider-Man has had nearly 40 solo dedicated video games released on consoles, PC, and handhelds between 1982 and 2018. As only the second video game in the subject genre of comics on consoles, looking at Spider-Man on the 2600 in a modern context can prove to be tricky, particularly for anyone who couldn't properly absorb the work in question in the context of its own time. Still, as an early video game, Spider-Man stands out. The thin, pixelated main character is recognizable in his delineated red and blue colors, and the simple idea of scaling a building with the control stick and single button makes for a pretty solid outing, all things considered. And hey, even the Green Goblin appears, and the game even supported two players. Still, more power to you if you're able to endure the repeated, scraping sound effect of Spidey shooting his web. The next several years for Spider-Man gaming would be spotty. After appearing in some early computer games for the likes of the Amstrad CPC, the Apple II, the ZX Spectrum, and MS-DOS, Spidey's next turn on a home console would actually be in a nearly bootleg appearance in 1989. On the Sega Genesis and CD, The Revenge of Shinobi featured a plethora of licensed characters that were included without the permission of rights holders, and Spider-Man was among them. This actually ended up working out, though, since Sega had licensing rights for Spidey, and therefore he was able to still be included in a few additional releases of the game after the standard release. The same couldn't be said for other boss characters like Rambo, Batman, and Godzilla, who had to be recolored and modified to avoid the licensing issues. 
Moving into the next decade, the original Game Boy's The Amazing Spider-Man was released in 1990, developed by the future Donkey Kong Country creators at Rare Limited, then known as Rareware, and published by... LJN. In spite of its publisher, it was generally well-received, though it was also kind of odd seeing Spidey talk with his greatest enemies via walkie-talkie in the game's static cutscenes. The first Game Boy game was followed up by two additional ones, though they weren't as polished as the first game. Spidey's following years in gaming would be very prolific through the remainder of the 90s, including releases such as the generally solid The Amazing Spider-Man vs. The Kingpin on the Genesis, aka Mega Drive, a fun beat-em-up arcade game in 1991 developed by Sega, the difficult-to-control Spider-Man Return of the Sinister Six on the original Nintendo Entertainment System published by... LJN, the crossover Spider-Man and the X-Men in Arcade's Revenge on the Super Nintendo, and the Japanese exclusive The Amazing Spider-Man Lethal Foes on the Super Famicom. While some of these games managed to make a pretty solid impression on gamers by going hand-in-hand with the generally high level of popularity Spidey was enjoying in the comics, it wasn't until 1994 that the first truly legendary Spider-Man game came to home consoles everywhere. Though its reception in its own time was largely mixed, it's managed to persist through, now, over two decades as one of the most definitive Spider-Man games ever, even if it may not ring as the most truthful to the spirit of the character. What else could I be talking about but Spider-Man Venom Maximum Carnage? Maximum Carnage is the kind of game that deserves its own episode of this show in the future, but suffice it to say that it made a pretty big impact both in its own time and on the future of Spider-Man in gaming. Based off of a 14-part crossover event that ran through Spidey's comics titles in 1993, where Cletus Cassidy, the psychotic serial killer who, when bonded with the alien symbiote, became the deadly Carnage, was able to replicate the symbiote to become Carnage again, and bust out of prison. The story features Carnage recruiting a group of criminals that then force Spider-Man and Venom to work together, at least for a little while, to stop Cassidy once again. As a 90s comic story, it's okay, but as a basis for a 2D beat-em-up video game, the story may actually be perfect. Developed by Software Creations and Acclaim Entertainment's Black Team, Maximum Carnage charged you to walk, run, and swing through various New York environments as both Spider-Man and Venom, and beat your way through street thugs and supervillains before finally encountering Carnage himself. The game features appearances by a plethora of recognizable Marvel characters such as Doppelganger, Carrion, Morbius, Firestar, Cloak and Dagger, Black Cat, Iron Fist, Demogoblin, and even Captain America. The game also features Shriek, who was the first villain Carnage broke out of prison at the beginning of the Maximum Carnage comic book arc. Maximum Carnage is a tricky game to quantify these days because the secret to its longevity seems to be in something of a sweet spot between the time it first came out and today. When looked at through the prism of its release, it may not seem like a very interesting game when compared with a whole host of other similar beat-em-ups that came out, 
Similarly, when looked at through a modern perspective, it doesn't seem like a particularly innovative example of a beat-em-up when compared with the final fights and streets of rages that are largely considered the ultimate examples of their genre. The sweet spot comes from people who grew up playing Maximum Carnage, and of course, it also comes from how well it represents the source material. Looking at the cutscenes, Maximum Carnage does a beautiful job in recreating much of the original story's artwork in pixel form, and though there are some baffling deviations from the comics in part, MC still stands as one of the generally better comic space video games to come from the 16-bit era of the medium. Maximum Carnage was followed upon by a sequel, though it seems more spiritual than it is direct. Venom and Spider-Man's separation anxiety arrived in North America in November of 1995 from a different developer and is generally just... okay. It certainly doesn't hit you in the face like Maximum Carnage does when you turn it on. The graphics generally pop with far less vibrancy than the previous game. The title is something of a misnomer, since it's based far more off of the Venom Limited series Lethal Protector than the actual Separation Anxiety Mini, and it somehow managed to be a more repetitive beat-em-up. Both Electronic Gaming Monthly and Next Generation Magazine panned it to hell and back, and it's largely perceived today to be inferior to what we saw from Maximum Carnage. Spidey's next solo game appearance was based on the aforementioned mid-90s animated series, releasing on the Super NES and Sega Genesis. Placing more emphasis on platforming than combat as Carnage and Separation did, it also had a bit more emphasis on puzzle solving and a somewhat limited combat repertoire. EGM and Next Generation would end up panning this game in their respective reviews as well, Though GamePro Magazine felt it deserved at least a little bit of praise for its graphical look in evoking the show and the comics, along with a sizable list of guest stars in the forms of other Marvel heroes who pop up. Also in 1995, Spidey appeared alongside many of his heroic colleagues in Capcom's now legendary fighter, Marvel Superheroes, the forerunner to the Marvel vs. Capcom series. Similarly to our last issue's profile character in Iron Man, he also showed up in Capcom's Marvel Superheroes in War of the Gems as a playable character on the Super NES the following year, and also showed up in Spider-Man Web of Fire, one of the final games created for Sega's fledgling 32X add-on for the Genesis and Mega Drive, and an MS-DOS PC exclusive called Spider-Man The Sinister Six. Throughout the remainder of the 1990s, he made appearances in both Marvel Superheroes vs. Street Fighter in 1997, before appearing in Marvel vs. Capcom Clash of Superheroes in 1998. After this, Spidey's next appearance would see the character bust into the third dimension of video games, and as we detailed for you earlier, it came not a moment too soon. By this point, only recently rebounding from its late 90s bout with Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, Marvel was readying to break into the 21st century in a big way. With a movie at 20th Century Fox based on the X-Men poised to hit big at movie theaters in the summer of 2000, 
They were also prepping Spider-Man to finally break onto the big screen by attempting to consolidate the film rights for the character at a new home. With most of their financial woes sorted, Marvel began to more aggressively license their characters out to other companies in the final years of the 90s, and in 1998, entered into an agreement with game publisher Activision to create new experiences based on Spider-Man for current and next-gen game consoles and PC. Between the acquisition of the license and the ultimate release of our subject game, Activision couldn't have had all that much time to get production rolling, but as luck would have it, they had an up-and-coming development house in something of a back pocket, all too ready to pick up the lucrative license and run with it. That house was known as Neversoft Games. Founded in Woodland Hills, California in the summer of 1994, Neversoft Games began as a contracted entity by Playmates Toys, with the developers working on a Sega Genesis title to go along with an animated series called Skeleton Warriors. Just a few months after their founding, Neversoft was asked to switch gears from developing for the Genesis and instead amp the title up to run on the forthcoming 32-bit Sega Saturn instead. Ultimately, the game was released in June of 1997, and shortly thereafter, the studio began to expand while porting their recently completed title to the popular Sony PlayStation. In 1996, Neversoft had their first brush with the properties of Marvel Comics when they were enlisted to assist Tomb Raider developer Crystal Dynamics on a game based on Ghost Rider, conceived to be a 2D side-scroller with some 3D elements, but the game never materialized, reportedly due to financial issues with its planned publisher. Not long after the Ghost Rider game went up in smoke, Neversoft developed a premise for a new game called Big Guns that was eventually sold to Sony Computer Entertainment. It actually ushered in an era of difficulty for the young studio, though, as they were enlisted by Shiny Entertainment to convert a PC action game called MDK to the PlayStation that ended up being significantly more difficult than originally anticipated. Development on Big Guns continued, though it changed its name to Exodus before being rather unceremoniously cancelled by Sony. The resulting cancellation led to layoffs at Neversoft, and just when it seemed like they were about to burn through their remaining financing, a chance meeting with Activision would prove to be a turning point for their future projects. Seeking a developer for a third-person action shooter called Apocalypse and weirdly enough, starring Bruce Willis, Neversoft was able to adapt their work on Big Guns into the development of the new title. While Neversoft was working diligently on Apocalypse, Activision made a request of them to create a prototype for an all-new skateboarding game. Competitive skateboarding seemed to hit a new height of popularity throughout the 1990s, and Activision wanted to try and parlay that popularity into a brand new, widely released video game title. Putting something together in the midst of working on Apocalypse, the publisher was impressed and made sure that the new skateboarding title would be Neversoft's next project. The developer created an all-new in-house engine in order to capture the physics of the fast movements and jumps required for such a game, and this eventually led to the release of the original Tony Hawk's Pro Skater on the PlayStation, the Sega Dreamcast, and the Nintendo 64 in September of 1999. 
The game was a huge hit, both critically and commercially, receiving review scores between 8.4 and 9.8 on a 10-point scale by the majority of the accredited outlets of its time. The game was more than enough to prove to Activision that the studio was a talent worth nurturing, and though they also wanted a sequel to Tony Hawk as quickly as possible, they also gave Neversoft the keys to an IP they had recently acquired in 1998. The Amazing Spider-Man. Though undoubtedly feeling the pressure by needing to split their staff between both Tony Hawk 2 and a new Spider-Man game, the team took it on. In fact, the studio seemed to be very excited about the possibilities that came with being able to put their stamp on a character as popular as Spider-Man, exuding a lot of enthusiasm for the possibilities that the character represented. Neversoft co-founder and president Joel Jewett and lead designer Chad Finley, respectively, spoke of the opportunity when they said, If anybody's ever given the opportunity to do Spider-Man as a video game, I think they would just snap it up. He's the superhero. I mean, the best superhero that you could ever come up with. Plus, he relates so much to, like, who we were growing up as kids, you know, having trouble with, you know, with girls and money, and then also being able to have all these cool powers, be able to swing around, wall crawl, super strength, spidey sense, the whole thing. Perhaps accounting for the somewhat exaggerated physics required to correctly pull off the acrobatics inherent in Spider-Man's abilities, the designers at Neversoft adapted the engine they'd developed for Tony Hawk and began modifying it for use with a character who walked, ran, jumped, and swung. Still, even though they had an idea on how to translate the character's movements through the use of their engine, that still left quite a bit of difficulty in adapting what they had seen in comics and animation for a real-time video game animation system. Jewett expounded on that when he said, we knew going in that it was going to be one of the most difficult games you could possibly try to do. The guy can go anywhere. Nevertheless, mechanically, the team at Neversoft eventually found a balance between the capabilities of their engine and many of the abilities that Spider-Man was supposed to be able to have from the comics. While the swinging mechanics in the game are comparatively primitive when you look at what would come later on, the fact that this team was able to crack even an approximation of the web-swinging experience in 3D space was a momentous achievement for its time. The team knew that they were really onto something as they honed the character's abilities when they were able to pull off, in relatively quick succession, a series of maneuvers that Spider-Man himself had performed numerous times across the body of his stories. Once again, lead designer Chad Fidley. And then the day we got it working, it was uh, one of the happiest days of my life, I know that. Well, it was uh, the day we got Spidey, you could jump off a building, hit your swing button, swing to a building, crawl up, go over like, you know, nice complicated surfaces, pop down, and then start fist fighting with uh, a bad guy that's, uh, you know, try to ruin the world. And we just looked at each other, all laughed and smiled and said, we got something that's really fun, even just to move the character around. Already, the philosophy at Neversoft, even with a relative crunch on their development time, seemed to be far more aware and reverent toward the ways in which the character should be able to move and play. That guiding philosophy proved to be pivotal in starting Spider-Man off on the right footing when compared to previous 3D superhero games, and the authenticity to the original material bleeds from the moment you start a new game. In addition to enlisting the unique vocal cords of Stan Lee himself to serve as the game's narrator, the game also enlisted voice actors from previous Spider-Man efforts to fill out parts of the voice cast. 
Actor Reno Romano reprised his role as Peter Parker in Spider-Man from the 1999 animated series Spider-Man Unlimited. Actress Jennifer Hale, who played Black Cat in the original 90s Spider-Man series and Mary Jane in Unlimited, reprised both roles for the game. Ephraim Zimbalis Jr., who voices Alfred Pennyworth on Batman the Animated Series and Dr. Octopus in the 90s Spider-Man cartoon, reprised his role as the Spidey villain for this game. Voice actor Darren Norris was a new hire, playing Venom and Eddie Brock, Mysterio, Scorpion, The Punisher, The Human Torch, and even Captain America. The story on display here is relatively straightforward, and Activision and Marvel even teamed up to produce a sort of prologue comic book that came with an issue of GamePro magazine written by an up-and-comer at Marvel named Brian Michael Bendis. The story itself, as well as the concept for that comic book, was the product of a man named T.Q. Jefferson, a producer at Activision who would go on to work as a manager and producer for the likes of Pixar Animation Studios and the games division of the Walt Disney Company, and eventually as the VP of production for Marvel Games. In the game, the story is told through great-looking full-motion video cutscenes with full voice work from the cast. When the game begins, Peter and Eddie Brock are both at a science demonstration featuring supposedly reformed scientist Otto Octavius. In the middle of his demonstration, however, Spider-Man appears and begins stealing some of Octavius' equipment. This is of particular surprise to Peter Parker, still in the audience, and he then changes into his alter ego to track down his imposter. Eddie Brock, feeling pressured to get a good shot of catching Spider-Man in the act for the Daily Bugle, is distraught when the imposter destroys his camera. On the verge of a nervous breakdown, he transforms into Venom, and swears revenge on both J. Jonah Jameson for keeping him down at the Daily Bugle, and on Spider-Man for breaking the thing he needs to make a living. The story feels very much in the vein of early Spider-Man stories because of its general irreverence, and also has a lot tonally in common with the animated shows of the 90s. It's also packed with easter eggs in the form of collectible comic book covers you can find peppered around the various levels, and even nods to other characters and locales, like the Fantastic Four's Baxter Building, and even a hideout for the Green Goblin you can stumble into during a mission running from the police. All of the building blocks are here to add up to a great superhero game, but more importantly, just a great game, period. So, when you actually pick up a controller to play the thing, does it hold up? Well, I'm forced to say... Oh yes, it absolutely does. When you play it today, there are admittedly a fair amount of caveats that can come with statements you make related to the year 2000 Spider-Man, but it does the game a disservice not to recognize just how perfectly it nails the spirit and pace of the character in its story and in its gameplay mechanics, especially in the context of the technology's time. The fact that the game works as well as it does as a relatively early 3D superhero title speaks volumes about the dedication that Neversoft brought to the table, and though it comes with a host of technical shortcomings because of its platforms, Spider-Man still holds up pretty well nearly 20 years after it first hit the scene. 
One of the things that I actually really admire about the game is how it took a technical limitation of its time and folded it into the game's story. In early 3D titles, draw distance was very, very low, which severely limited how expansive in-game environments could appear into the distance of a particular map. The way that some 3D games got around this limitation, including Spider-Man, was by placing a fog in the game world that would cover far objects and keep the player's attention focused on what was generally immediately in front of them. Spider-Man takes this a step further, though, by invoking its use of the distance-covering fog as a byproduct of the plot the game's villains place on the city, giving a feasible in-story explanation for why the game looks the way that it does. It's a simple but brilliant way to actually take advantage of a hardware limitation, and it helps to emphasize just how clever the team at Neversoft was. That's not to say that playing Spider-Man now doesn't present some shortcomings, but it's hardly fair to hold modern standards against a game released at the beginning of the century. Playing on a DualShock controller, it's difficult not to get frustrated when you quickly realize that the right analog stick cannot control the camera. Instead, the camera lines up behind you after a jump, and it makes general maneuverability seem somewhat limited in the game's 3D space. Playing on the original PlayStation also recalls some of those old perennial issues that plague a lot of early 3D games. The frame rate struggles to stay at a target of 30, aliasing on models is generally pretty bad, textures are at a very low resolution and generally look pretty blurry, and even the distinctive webs on Spider-Man's classic costume are actually absent when playing on the PS1. Again though, these are all mostly issues of the hardware, since as discussed at the top of the show, issues just like these plague a big portion of the PlayStation's 3D library. Considering where we'd been in 3D action games in just a few years leading up to 2000, Spider-Man is still very playable and enjoyable 18 years after it took its first bow. That says a lot about the game's design, its truthfulness to the spirit of the character, and its overall sense of fun. In addition to the comic book cover unlockables, there are also a whole host of alternate skins you can unlock from Spider-Man's then nearly 40-year history in Marvel Comics. From Spider-Man 2099, the Amazing Bagman from Amazing Spider-Man number 258 where he had to borrow a spare Fantastic Four costume and put a bag over his head, Ben Reilly's costume from the Clone Saga, the infamous black suit, and quite a bit more. The character biography section features short descriptions read by Mr. Stan Lee, which just further add to the game's authenticity, and all of these extra touches combine into an experience that, perhaps more than any other game we'd gotten thus far, feels like a celebration of everything that makes Spider-Man one of comics' greatest characters. Peter Parker's alter ego, The Amazing Spider-Man. Spidey's wall-crawling and web-slinging, combined with his super strength and amazing agility, make old Webhead one of the most spectacular superheroes around. It's one of my all-time favorite comic book video games, and still an enduring favorite among video games at large, even though I didn't play it for the first time until well after the original 2002 Spider-Man movie hit theaters. Caught up in my own web of Spider-mania, this was a game I sought out and played to scratch that itch, and it still stands to me as one of the most important foundational comic book games ever released. Think about it. Without this game, 
you wouldn't have the basis to build off of the reasonably solid first Spider-Man movie game that plays very similarly to this one. Without the first movie game, you don't get the game adaptation for Spider-Man 2, a game that serves as a modern benchmark even now for how to do a superhero game correctly. Without Spider-Man 2, you don't get to the likes of Ultimate Spider-Man, Web of Shadows, Shattered Dimensions, Edge of Time, The Amazing Spider-Man, and of course, 2018's Marvel's Spider-Man. That game's creative director, Brian Intihar, even cites the Neversoft game as his personally favorite Spidey game before his, I'm sure, that he's ever played. Speaking with Game Informer in a rapid-fire interview about the new game, Intihar was asked, What's your personal favorite Spider-Man game, not including this one? And his response, Spider-Man that was made by Neversoft for the PlayStation 1. Beyond just Spider-Man, though, this game showed how a 3D action game without tank controls could be effectively created. Which no doubt helped lead, at least in part, to a series like Assassin's Creed or even the Batman Arkham games. I mean, sure, I, I can be honest, Spider-Man probably didn't do as much as early 3D Zelda games or Tomb Raider, but as a product of that era of early 3D game development, I firmly believe that Spider-Man deserves a place as one of the innovators, and it unquestioningly deserves that spot among superhero video games. Critics also took notice. An up-and-coming writer at the official PlayStation magazine named Chris Baker wrote a very positive review of Spider-Man by concluding, Spider-Man is still the best superhero game of all time, maybe even the best action game of the PlayStation era, period. You'll find yourself booting it up multiple times after beating it, not only to access the better costumes or to find all of the comics, though that's certainly reason enough, but also just because it's so much fun. Even after playing it twice now, I find myself facing some serious Spidey withdrawal after only a day or two, something I haven't felt about a video game in a long time. If Spider-Man doesn't make a true believer out of you, then nothing else will. He gave it 5 out of 5. In the review at Eurogamer, writer Tom Bramwell said, quote, The game really does the Spider-Man dynasty justice. Let's just hope the lineage continues in quality with the forthcoming PS2 version. If you own a PlayStation, though, don't be daft. Get out there and buy this now. He gave it 9 out of 10. GamePro Magazine gave it 4.5 out of 5. IGN gave it 9 out of 10. The accolades were most definitely there, but it also received more general ratings between 7 and 8 from outlets like EGM, Game Informer, GameSpot, and PC Gamer. So, while not universally praised as a masterpiece, I think it's fair to characterize the general critical consensus as highly positive. That, especially given its position as a 3D game, a superhero game, and another solid outing from Neversoft. So, with that... Let's wind this down with some final thoughts. Spider-Man is an enduring game. I don't know how much longer that's going to be the case as gaming hardware becomes more advanced and future generations undoubtedly become less and less patient with the way older games work, but there will likely come a time when Spider-Man of the year 2000 
is looked at by younger gamers very much the same way that I look at the Spidey game on the Atari 2600. Too primitive to have much fun with. Still, even if that may be the case, it has a very positive legacy to it. Whether you look at the gleam in the eyes of Neversoft production personnel when they talk about what it's like to actually work on a character as cool as this one, down to videos and stories of people talking about what it was like when they first got their hands on the game when it first came out, no one seemed to have much of any cynicism when it comes to looking at the game as anything other than what it is. A very, very good representation of the Marvel Comics icon. Naturally, its popularity enticed Activision to put out a sequel, but wanting to kill some time between 2000 and 2002 when the first Spider-Man movie would come out, they enlisted a new developer to create the 2000 game's direct sequel. In the meantime, this game would also be ported to other platforms including the Nintendo 64, the Dreamcast, and PC, and on consoles, the Dreamcast version is probably the best looking. The N64 version would end up losing a lot of the great full motion video cutscenes between levels, and came with that system's signature over-blurriness, but Dreamcast and PC players got to enjoy a visual upgrade on an already great title. As for the direct sequel, Spider-Man 2 Enter Electro was developed by Vicarious Visions and released exclusively on the PS1, though it wasn't as well received as the first game. This was all preliminary though, as Spider-Man would finally hit the big screen less than a year after the sequel game, when the film directed by Sam Raimi and starring Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst hit theaters in May of 2002, alongside a video game developed by Treyarch for Activision that owes a lot of its mechanics to the innovations first made by Neversoft. Spider-Man would then begin to rule the world, and his larger domination hasn't really ever stopped Neversoft would continue making Tony Hawk games before being absorbed into Activision-owned development team Infinity Ward in 2014, and Spider-Man would continue to release games and movies up through the day this episode of the podcast is released in September of 2018, and I'm sure even well beyond. Spider-Man as a character is still one of Marvel's greatest icons, because people continue to know him intimately through the code he lives by. With great power, there must also come great responsibility. Because of that, the whole world can't wait to see exactly what the webhead does next. That's going to do it for issue number 11 of Comics on Consoles and the story of Neversoft's Spider-Man. I hope you enjoyed this issue, and keep an eye out for the show's returning discussion portion, released right alongside what you're listening to now in issue number 11.1, where I welcome three hardcore Spider-Man fans, one of whom worked on the characters' games for years, to talk about the enduring legacy of this game. Now, on to future plans. I've talked with you guys for a while about finally moving beyond the bounds of the 3D era of games, and touching on more retro 2D games that feature comics characters. I think the time is right to finally delve into one of those offerings, but I also wanted to make sure to choose one that I felt something of a personal connection to. So, to that end, we're going to explore a game that I was both obsessed with as a kid, but that also serves as an adaptation of one of the most important comic book stories ever to hit the racks of specialty stores in the tumultuous comic book decade 
of the 1990s. In addition to getting a pretty solid video game out of it, this is also the story that ended up hooking me definitively into being a fan of the stories told in the pages of comics with the iconic characters that I've come to revere so much. The story that spawned this game also represents a rarity in comics, as mainstream popular culture also became briefly obsessed with it shortly after a pretty momentous issue had been published. So, we're going to be walking down the streets of Metropolis with a black armband as we prepare to witness a funeral for a friend. Be sure to come back next year, as Comics on Consoles issue number 12 will be taking a look at the 16-bit brawler, The Death and Return of Superman, developed by Blizzard Entertainment and published by Sunsoft in 1994 for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System and the Sega Genesis and Mega Drive. Keep an eye out on our social media channels for more information when it becomes available. In the meantime, feel free to follow Comics on Consoles on Facebook and Twitter, check out our website, comicsonconsoles.com, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app of choice. Comics on Consoles is a proud member of the Batman Podcast Network. Until next time, keep saving the world, gamers and comics fans. After all, how more than ever, the world needs people who continue to believe in heroes. So, why not play one in a video game? Thanks for listening, take care, and we will talk with you again soon. Pirate, pirate.